Hello and welcome to the podcast. My guest today is one of the most important political leaders in modern British history. Neil Kinnock was the leader of the Labour Party from 1983 to 1992, during which time he faced off against Margaret Thatcher, who was Prime Minister until 1990, and then against John Major, who Lord Kinnock lost to in an extremely close-run election in 1992, having been expected by most of the media and the country to win. Neil talks to us today about the UK government response to the virus, his time as leader of the Labour Party, meeting with Ronald Reagan and Fidel Castro, and his battles across the dispatch box with Margaret Thatcher. Tony Blair has paid tribute to Kinnock's role in vanquishing the militant left from the Labour Party and initiating early changes which moved the party to a more politically acceptable or publicly acceptable and more electable centre ground and paving the way for Blair to become PM. Lord Kinnock left the House of Commons in 1995 and went on to become the Vice President of the European Commission under Romano Prodi from 1999 to 2004. He was described by the UK press in 1999 as the second most powerful man in Europe, and he's known for his radical modernization of the European Commission. Lord Kinnock joined the House of Lords in 2005. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Neil Kinnock to the podcast. How are you coping with, with the lockdown? Are you... Okay. Uh, I'm bloody fed up like everybody else. Um, <laughs> but it has to be done, so there we are. Yes, I, I, I actually, um, this week I listened to your, actually to your Desert Island Discs back in 1983, which you may or may not remember. But God, it, yes, it was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. It was very funny because um, I think it was Sue Lawley asked the question, how long are you going to be on the island? And you said, anything over one day and I'm going to be going bonkers and I'm going to swim back and forth until I get off. Yeah. So I thought of you at this time in the lockdown and thought, Lord Kinnock is probably, uh, you know, desperate to go outside. Yeah, it's, it's Neil, by the way. I, oh, Lord Kinnock. Thank you. Makes me, makes me feel like a pub. Okay. Well, I was going to say, if I use all your titles, Neil, it will sound like a character out of Game of Thrones, I think, right? You've got Baron, Lord. Yes. So, yeah. Okay. So, th again, thank you for the time. I guess, are you, have, read the lockdown. Have you tried any home haircuts in the, in the house yet? or No, nothing. Okay. Nothing like that yet. No exercise uh, videos? I... I <laughs> I think that uh, I managed to miss the haircut therapy. <laughs> yeah, my my wife does mine anyway, so I'm fine. And uh, are you are you reading anything particularly compelling or watching anything that you that you, people might like to share? Because I think everyone's in the same position now, aren't they? Well, I've just finished reading um, a book called From Russia with Blood, uh, which is the story of. Um, the number of uh, Russians, mainly oligarchs, uh, here in the United Kingdom and have got connections uh, either by patronage or as enemies of Putin. Huh. Um, I can't remember the name of the young woman who wrote it, but it's brilliantly researched. It's wonderful. And other than that, I'm uh, uh, reading thrillers mainly, I guess. Uh -huh. Well, I'll certainly check that uh, that novel out because it is quite alarming. The number. Of... No, it's not a novel. It's uh, a documentary, and it's uh -huh. 
quite frightening, actually. Yes, it's quite, well, it's certainly alarming the number of accidental deaths that seem to happen yes. in Weybridge and people falling off of uh, yeah, that's right. balconies. Um, moving on to the, 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 this whole incident with the, this whole crisis that we're facing now, the UK has obviously had the, the second highest rate of deaths now from the virus in, in, the, in the world. Yeah. I don't think any of us would ever have expected that, uh, you know, even a month ago. What's your view on the government's response to the virus so far? I think it's well established now that the response was uh, too late and complacent. And that's seen in the tragic evidence of uh, illness and deaths amongst those who particularly care for others and also amongst the uh, ethnic minority communities and in an assortment of other ways that demonstrate that if the lockdown had started earlier and if the preparation had been more comprehensive and if the advice, scientific and medical advice that they've received over the years past had been properly responded to, uh, we'd be in a different position. Uh, but the main thing now, of course, is to focus on the current reality to prevent a second wave of virus-related illness and death. And that means sustaining uh, substantial self-discipline, even if it's relaxed a little bit and I mean a very little bit, on the regime of the last couple of months. Um, the aid now that the government has put in place is absolutely unprecedented. Some have described it as capitalism on the way up, socialism on the way down. Even uh, one of your colleagues in, in the House of Lords, uh, Lord Lamont, said this week, the, suggested the government is likely to end up with equity stakes in large airlines by the end of this. Is this an, an opportunity or a turning point back towards democratic socialism? The atmosphere and the precedents created by a basic reality that in democracies, indeed in all systems, uh, you cannot deal with a crisis of this dimension without direct government action means that there will be a changed attitude towards some of the nostrums of the last 40 years. And that could mean, if the government, even this Tory government, is sensible, uh, that some aspects of the support for investment, training and employment are substantially retained. And that, of course, is very much in keeping with the idea of active government, which is central to democratic socialism. A long time ago, I spoke of something called the enabling state, a state that is at the disposal of the people, under the feet, not over the head of the people, that would exist in order to innovate and to generate uh, when the market system was clearly reluctant to do so. And 
if the government has any sense, they will adopt the central theme of an enabling state instead of the ideological uh, demonizing of the state. Um, my view has always been, since I was a kid, that the state is an instrument, no more, no less, and in greedy and stupid hands, it will be greedy and stupid, in benevolent and uh, enabling hands, it will be benevolent and enabling. And that's the kind of state that we've got to have. But it will mean a large number of people in the Conservative Party and elsewhere changing uh, a deeply rooted uh, mythology about the danger of the state. It's there to be controlled and used, mm. not to be regarded as something to frighten the children. Mm. And I, I think it, that echoes perhaps one of your mentors, I believe, Nye Bevan, uh, made those comments about the state. If Depending who's controlling it, 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 it oh, transfers yes. the, uh, the character onto it. Yep, that's uh, right. That's, but that's been central to the belief of democratic socialists like myself since, well, certainly since the middle of the 19th century. And of course, it's got to be adapted for the radically changing circumstances uh, of modernization, of technology, of science, of people's expectations, of human liberty. Um, but nevertheless, that theme is central that the state should be there for the use of the people, uh, not for control of the people, and not for manipulation of the people. And now, again, in terms of that, the idea of some people in our society being left behind, the, the quantitative easing after the, the banks crisis uh, in 2008, and, and now a lot of this is happening again, the stimulus after the virus crisis, will seemingly lead, and its purpose in some ways, I believe, is to lead to high inflation, which makes existing inequality even worse. It's because real wages come lower, and those with interest-bearing assets have their debt inflated away. So the wealthy get wealthier, and the, the, the poor, who often don't have a vo much of a voice, get left behind. What should we be doing now to stem this seemingly uh, ever-widening wealth gap? Uh, well, the first thing is I, I diverge somewhat from uh, your interpretation of the effects of the quantitative easing uh, that began in 2008 in reaction to the uh, unprecedented uh, collapse of the financial system. The uh, QE was the right thing to do, except that uh, it did have the effect mainly of asset inflation because of the way in which that easing was uh, developed and employed. And it meant inflation in house prices, but also inflation in other forms of assets, uh, especially for those individuals and corporate interests that had large uh, financial ad, uh, assets or access to them. So 
what should have been done is to make so-called people's uh, quantitative easing so that the uh, easing of various kinds of controls and restrictions in the allocation of credit uh, fed much more widely into investment and employment rather than in asset appreciation and accumulation. Uh, so what we have now is a different kind of easing. It is in many ways quantitative easing, but because it's substantially being paid directly to people who are put out of work uh, by the coronavirus epidemic and by the emergency and to those who are self-employed and other categories, it means that the effect of this uh, uh, flow of uh, support for various groups of people uh, will be more effective in um, modifying the depressing effects, the economically depressing effects of the epidemic, and then also providing a base for recovery. So it'll be more effective than the original uh, monetary quantitative easing, because this is fiscal quantitative easing. Now, that said, there are a hell of a lot of groups are still being left out. Uh, obviously, um, the lower people's income is, and the more insecure it is, the less the effect of providing um, wage support or benefit support. And the more fragile uh, a small business is, the less effective are the various kinds of allowances and permissions and support there. And so far as large manufacturing is concerned, the 50 million cap on loan financing is, of course, puny and totally inadequate. Um, if they don't shift over the next few weeks, they're going to kill a large manufacturing industry that has managed to survive the last 40 years, including what remains of the British steel industry. So this particular set of initiatives cannot yet be regarded to be over. It needs additions and it needs more imagination and it needs a much greater sense of relationship with the realities of the structure of the British economy. Uh, so far as self-employed people are concerned, and so far as large industries are concerned, apart from the fact that there has to be constant vigilance about the condition of those who are on low incomes. They still aren't getting the support that they manifestly need. Um, Neil, can I just ask, how much time do you have today? I'm just, uh, just so that I can get an idea of, and obviously if you feel at any point you're getting tired and you want to, me to um, get lost. I'm sure you're going to tell me that, but okay, I got about another uh, twenty minutes. Yeah, twenty minutes. Okay, so I'll so I'll move on a bit um, here. What? Um, 
Regarding the, the current state of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer seems very electable. He's expected to take Labour in a more moderate social democrat direction, while also hopefully winning that supermarket test, which Jeremy Corbyn, at least at the, at the end of his time as leader of the Labour Party, failed. Do, do you think Sir Keir will be the next Labour Prime Minister, and what advice would you give him now? <laughs> Well, I certainly hope that Keir is going to win. I've got a great deal of faith in him, and I think that's entirely justified by his record and by the quality that he's already managed to demonstrate in the course of five weeks as leader of the Labour Party in immensely difficult circumstances. So uh, I've got lots of confidence in him. Um, I don't think that he'll need much in the way of advice. If he can manage to get Labour out of the abyss into which Corbyn plunged it, Corbyn and his acolytes, uh, then uh, he will have a position of considerable authority in the Labour Party and more widely because people will see that it is... His quality of relevance, of realism, of being plain, sensible and driven by common sense that will have recaptured support for Labour in communities of every kind. And um, that's been lost, not just over the last couple of years, but over rather longer than that by what appeared to be the introversion of the Labour Party, the concentration on its own condition, uh, especially under the leadership of the Corbynites, who are people, they've always existed, but this is the first time they've managed to get control of the Labour Party, people who were always more interest, interested in securing power in the Labour Party than securing power for the Labour Party and uh, the party itself and public perceptions of the party have taken a hammering as a consequence of that. We are now coming out of that with a leader that has never been part of that attitude who has always wanted to secure democratic power for Labour Party and knows that that unavoidably and essentially means having breadth of support and making width of appeal. Um, yes, I suppose from as you gained, came ever closer to, to power from 83 to 92, did you start to have to, I think Corbyn is an example of one of the um, socialist politicians who can't strike the right balance between idealism and pra pragmatism. Um, did you feel like you had to go through some transition like that as you came closer to power during the during your time as leader of the Labour Party? No, I think that the record actually demonstrates a very substantial vein of pragmatism in me. Um, uh, the understanding that in order to be appealing, political policies have to be 
relevant to the condition in which people find themselves. Now, that doesn't mean the abandonment of ideals, which give the energy and imagination that is essential in democratic politics. But it does mean that you have to, well, to use a cliche, cut your coat according to your cloth. And it means that in the policies you advocate, you must make people able to see a future, to have an eye on the horizon, but not make the horizon so far away that it is beyond comprehension. And uh, I suppose it could be said that I uh, had to uh, modify a degree of directness in the way in which I made my polit political arguments in order to try to communicate the fact that what we were putting before the British people was realistic, uh, workable, and in their direct and general interest. So, I, yes, I, I guess you go through that. But I think just about every political leader does that, uh, not because they've cast off their ideals, but because they realize that ideals without democratic power are more of a hobby than a mission. Now, coming back to, moving on a bit, you, you, you're known for making great and impassioned speeches. Did you write your own speeches, and where did that uh, ability come from? I wrote every word that I ever said. I, uh, to my great regret, I, I had people working with me who used to provide me with fine drafts that a lot of other politicians uh, would simply use with crossing the odd T or uh, inserting the odd comma. Um, but I was never comfortable with other people's words. So to my great cost and to their great cost, God love them, um, uh, I used to write everything that I said myself. Uh, that's when I uh, discovered from about 1979 on that I had to write speeches because if you do what I'd always previously done, and that is to speak without much in the way of notes, um, the merest slip in a sentence, uh, punctuation in the wrong place, um, uh, the smallest error of fact, uh, saying 0 0.5 instead of 0 0.3, um, would be the only thing that would be reported. So that's when I started writing speeches. And um, uh, it took a lot of time. It diverted a lot of energy. But in the end, it's what I had to do. Um, you were kind enough to say, where's the, where did the inspiration come from? Um, from the realities of the surrounding world, really. Um, I was always moved by... Uh, people, not just politicians, but teachers and others um, who could paint the pictures of what existed and what could be. And I suppose that's the style generally that 
I employed instinctively. Uh-huh. There was there was no training involved. Perhaps there should have been. I don't know, but I don't know how you train for that. Um, some people may remember, some some may have forgotten, but former Vice President Joe Biden famously plagiarized one of your speeches during his, I think it was 1988 camp, presidential campaign, and he, uh, had, he had to drop out because of it. Did you ever, were you in touch with him after that? Or did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Joe did it. Uh, he used my speeches several times, uh, but always acknowledged the source. And on the one occasion that he was speaking off the cuff, and he didn't acknowledge the source, uh, that was picked up by a, a Labour Party member, actually, who was campaigning for Dukakis mm-hmm. and recognised the speech. And that um, became a central accusation of the Dukakis campaign, and it meant that Joe had to quit, quit the race. Um, I saw him about a year later. Uh, we had a lovely long chat. We've been friends ever since. And um, uh, he explained the circumstances. I entirely sympathized with that. Uh, And, um, uh, you know, it wasn't an act of dishonesty. It was an error of innocent omission. Mm -hmm. And I think people understand that now. Uh, now, may, if I may talk about your parents for a moment. Joe, yeah. Joe, Joe by the way, sure. go ahead. <laughs> he yeah. wasn't the only American politician who used my speeches. Really? But no, uh, Gary Hart did, for instance. Um, and, and Gary always fastidiously acknowledged the source. Um, and as I said to him, of course, they didn't know who the hell you were talking about. <laughs> they probably thought it was a Polish philosopher. But, but anyway, we had a laugh over that. Brilliant. Well, it's a, it's a, the best form of flattery, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, but it is kind, yeah. Um, now, just very quickly, I, I think when you were 29 years old, very sadly, your parents d- died within days of each other. Yeah, that's um, right. Very, very tragically. A lot of... People who go on to do great things, great leaders, great um, entrepreneurs, they, a lot of them have endured something similar, whether it's hardship or some early introduction to the, the harshness of, of mortality at an early age. I'm just wondering, is that something that spurred you on in some way or made you want to achieve more or gave you an, that, that idea that like, how short life can be? Um, I, I think it goes further back than that. Obviously, my parents' death within eight days of each other had a shattering effect on me, and um, I guess I was saved from uh, disabling despair uh, by my wife, and the fact that a week after my mother died, um, our second child was born. So uh, both love and preoccupation uh, came to my rescue. But going further back than that, uh, to be brought up in a South Wales mining area, steelworking area, uh, when I was in the 40s and 50s, is to be acquainted quite frequently with the tragedy of terrible injury and sudden death. Um, I'm not making out that it was worse than it was. Uh, The facts speak for themselves. 
but it meant that in my own family, um, we'd known appalling industrial accidents uh, to close relatives and uh, in the surrounding community, uh, there were uh, kids in school without fathers and uh, there were evident uh, injuries, industrial injuries and war injuries that everybody could see. And any thinking person could understand that changes in the law of industrial safety and better representation and protection could save a lot of that misery. And uh, to some extent, I suppose, um, both inspiration and the sense of outrage comes from the knowledge that so much of that pain and danger is preventable if the rest of the community does the right thing through democracy. So I guess a certain degree of determination and resilience comes from that kind of background. Um, <laughs> Excuse me. No, no problem whatsoever. <coughs> now, what was it? Many people remember you for your fierce battles across the dispatch box with Mrs. Sa Mrs. Thatcher uh, <coughs> in uh, Parliament for many years, and particularly in the late eighties, you were you were often seen as as winning that that very difficult battle. Um, how did you prepare for those duels, and what was it like? Um, well, sometimes we prepared at length, uh, rehearsing questions and going through possible responses. Other times, uh, it was quite instantaneous and simply required me to think on my feet. Uh, the, the difficulty with uh, facing Mrs. Thatcher was um, she was a woman by then of supreme confidence um, and with uh, political uh, victories behind her, uh, she had a doting um, backbench uh, majority, uh, very, very large, who were disciplined into um, uh, simultaneous heckling and uh, all the rest of it. Um, and so you're up against a wall of sound as often as not, uh, which never makes anybody's life easier. But you persist, and you identify uh, shortcomings and weaknesses um, and try to score hits. Um, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. If we came away, or if I came away from Prime Minister's questions with what I called a score draw, I was uh, quite satisfied. Um, because I knew that uh, the election wasn't going to be won at uh, parliamentary questions, um, it was going to be won by a combination of factors. And of course, um, on the night Mrs. Thatcher resigned, um, I spoke to my people in the office and uh, we opened a, a bottle or two. <laughs> and I said, no, celebrate tonight because uh, we have got rid of a source of great evil. Uh, I'm not saying Mrs. Thatcher was evil. I'm saying that the application of her policies mm -hmm. had evil effects. 
but from tomorrow, we are facing an entirely different battle. So drink and be merry tonight, because tomorrow morning is going to be quite grey. Mm -hmm. And of course it was, because by getting rid of Thatcher, uh, the Tories got rid of our greatest single electoral asset, especially when she was replaced by uh, the apparently mild and apparently moderate uh, John Major. Mm -hmm. And people who loathe Thatcher felt quote, quote, the change has come, mm -hmm. so they could safely go on uh, voting Tories because uh, Mrs. Thatcher had gone. Mm. Um, anyway, that's what beat us in the end, but uh, that's a slightly different story. Well, yes, because even the Financial Times were, were backing you. Yes. Um, which and the odds were that you were going to win, I believe, right as you well <laughs> know better than I, right into the, the night of the election, I believe. Yeah, um, but not not for me. I I, I didn't think we would, but mm. there we are. Do you now? There, there are a lot of talk these days about well, there's, there's a big investigation, obviously, in the U.S. about Russian interfering with the election and for Trump. Um, did you? I know that I read something about Reagan. Um, perhaps was not so keen on you, your government coming to power. Do you feel like there might have been any hijinks going on behind the scenes in 1992? Uh, well, the evidence says that there was coordination between Mrs. Thatcher's office and the White House. Um, and um, I had one quite satisfactory uh, discussion with Ronald Reagan uh, in the mid-80s. And then when I went back a couple of years later, uh, the whole tone had changed. And uh, the discussion we had was heavily misrepresented, um, uh, much later corrected uh, by the White House spokesman. But the damage had been done. So I'm not saying that Reagan himself was complicit, uh, but I think the evidence says that there was enough uh, sympathy and contact between Downing Street and the White House um, to have tried to ensure that uh, the visit that I made to the White House on the second occasion uh, was reported very negatively. So I guess uh, that went on. They were political allies. Uh, I didn't expect much else, but it was uh, pretty underhand. Uh, the Russian interventions in the Trump election and in other elections, of course, are of a different order, uh, and they will continue for as long as uh, there's such a thing as a cyber communication system. Um, what we have to do is to be vigilant and take precautions legally and technically in order to combat that kind of interference. Hmm. And what about Fidel Castro? You had a meeting with him. What was? Do so, you have any stories yeah. about Mr. Castro? <laughs> well, I, first of all, the meeting was supposed to be at midnight, and it then took place at 2 a.m. in Managua, in Nicaragua. 2 a.m. <laughs> yeah, it was simply that we were both in the city for the inauguration of the then-democratic 
President Ortega. Ortega has turned out to be a villain in the years since, but there you are. Um, the uh, It was a time of great joy because of the uh, victory secured by the Sandinistas. Uh, and I thought it would be a good opportunity since I was in the same uh, town at the same place, uh, same time as uh, Castro to try and have a chat with him. Uh, so it was arranged. And we had quite a long meeting. Um, uh, he, he, he talked at great length and quite a lot of it was uh, inseparable. <laughs> um, the one thing he did say that amused me, I asked him about his beard. And uh, he said he'd started growing a beard when, um, when he was, as he put it, in the field. Uh, that's when they were fighting in the early 1960s <clears throat> and their camp was <coughs> excuse me <coughs> their camp was attacked while he was having a shave so they ran into the bush into the jungle and uh, they were chased for a couple of weeks during which time he didn't have any chance to shave and uh, he realized uh, he said, I, I spent the whole morning thinking about the amount of time that a man uses to shave. And I realized, put together, it was about three months in an average life. And so I decided to give myself three months and stop shaving. So that's where Castro's beard came from. Wow, what a fantastic story. That's brilliant. Um, now... Neil, I know you mentioned another 20 minutes, so we're there now. Do you, would, do you have time, more time, or do you want to tell yeah, me um, to get... About about four minutes, yes. Four minutes more? To, yeah, I've got to get going at quarter past. Yeah. Understood, Neil. Thank you so much again. Um, do you think Labour could have won in 1997 without the work that was done between 83 and 92? Or would the party have remained stuck in the militant dark ages? You're famous for purging to some extent the some of the militant forces uh, much as Mr. Starmer will have to deal with momentum now um, well two different phenomena militant and momentum uh, but Keir will know how to go about dealing with um, those elements over the next couple of years um, it, it wasn't just militant Mil militant was one uh, element of the gen much more general malaise, which is, uh, I suppose, for want of a better uh, description, called denary. Um, the uh, kind of ideas, uh, policies uh, espoused and put forward by Tony Benn and his followers um, that uh, had a completely unrealistic view of uh, what was possible and what would appeal to the British people. Uh, and okay, Tony Benn was very roughly dealt with by the press. I know a little about that as well. Um, but uh, for a couple of years, um, 
they effectively controlled the policy output of the Labour Party. And of course, they uh, deeply divided the Labour movement. And that meant that we didn't just have to deal with, uh, with an interest uh, Trotskyite faction, militant, uh, and a couple of other similar factions, but we had to make policy changes that demonstrated that we were uh, realistic and patriotic and forward-looking uh, and weren't continually uh, looking to make a future out of the past. Um, so that took uh, very arduous efforts and the lapse of several years during which the efforts had to be absolutely continual, and I mean 24-7. Um, so, uh, yes, the party uh, was changed, not only in its policy and its organization and constitution and finances, all disasters that I had to try and repair and rectify. Um, and uh, Tony Blair himself said that um, without the changes that I brought about, um, he wouldn't have secured victory in 1997. I'm not sure that that's absolutely correct. I think that by 97, people were very weary and distrustful of the Conservatives, and that would have uh, assisted Labour. But of course, without convincing leadership and the maintenance of the different policy profile um, that I introduced, uh, then the uh, victory in 97 would have been rather more modest than uh, uh, Tony's absolute triumph. Um, so uh, I was grateful to him for uh, the praise that he gave me. Um, uh, and you're bound to cherish that kind of accolade when it's come from such a victory. Um, let's put it like this. Uh, because I did what I did, he didn't have to do it, mm. which always makes life a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> Much easier to move into a clean house than one that needs renovation. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, do you have one time for one more? I could, I've got loads yeah. more questions, but I know you have to go. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. I'll just, they're just having a look here. Um, well, it, as bizarre as it's been up until till now with the pandemic, with Brexit, last week the Pentagon released footage of UFOs, which they said were unidentified. What do you make of that? Is that Trump distraction uh, tactics? Classically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that there isn't uh, some kind of sustained life on other planets in an infinite system, um, but I think that the timing of the uh, of the public disclosure was certainly uh, classic Trump White House handling, um, and we've we've got our own UFO. <clears throat> coming on the 31st of December in the form of a uh, off-the-edge Brexit. Mm. Um, 
<laughs> that would be perilous enough. Well, the country, <laughs> yes. It, that would be perilous by itself. But um, in the wake of the COVID uh, emergency and economic crisis, that's simply going to add to the appalling cost. Yes, sadly, uh, I, I totally agree. I think it's a terribly frightening prospect and not what we, the country needs now. In, in terms of, now, final for you, what's next for Neil Kinnock? Obviously, you've got your whole career in the House of Lords ahead of you. <laughs> well, yes, um, we'll see what happens with that because uh, there will, at some stage, be sensible uh, proposals for uh, pretty radical reform. And uh, that might give an opportunity for people um, of advanced age to consider what their future is. Uh, so we'll see what comes with that. Um, uh, at 78, I don't dwell too much on what might be my personal future. It might be a very short one. I don't know. Uh, uh, I'm sure it won't be. God help us, it won't be. But... Uh... Neil Kinnock, thank you so much for making the time today. It is okay. very much appreciated. I really do appreciate your time. Where are you from, by the way? I am half English, half American. My mother is, um, I say I'm half Mank, half Yank, because I grew yeah. up. My mother was in the VSO from Manchester, and my dad was in the Peace Corps, and they met in Kenya in the, in the early 70s, and then they moved back. So I grew up in Brooklyn, um, and then the whole family moved in when I, in 1986. I came to the UK um, All right. and saw you on telly battling Mrs. Thatcher and thought, goodness me, that's not what US politics looks like. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's what all the people in the States have always told me. I started thinking as I was coming over here, why is it that Joe Biden is the first in his family ever to go to a university? Why is it that my wife who's sitting out there in the audience is the first in her family to ever go to college? People in Britain would have been familiar with those words. They heard the same ones in a political commercial from Labour Party leader Neil Kinnock. Why am I the first Kinnock in a thousand generations to be able to get the university? Why is Glenys the first woman in her family in a thousand generations? Biden saw the Kinnock commercial and evidently loved it. Was it because they were weak? Those people who could wait, work eight hours underground and then come up and play football. Weak. My ancestors who worked in the coal mines in northeast Pennsylvania and who come up after 12 hours and play football for four hours. Biden had told other audiences he admired Kinnock, not this one. This one, he later said, he had listening in hushed silence. No, it's not because they weren't as smart. It's not because they didn't work as hard. It's because they didn't have a platform upon which to stand. Anybody really think that they didn't get what we had because they didn't have the talent or the strength or the endurance or the commitment? Of course not. It was because there was no platform upon which they could stand. Okay, thanks for listening. And thanks again to Neil Kinnock. That was a clip of Joe Biden's 1988 campaign during which he had to step down because of plagiarizing Neil's speech. As Neil mentioned on the podcast, they are in fact good friends. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a review. Aside from that, stay safe out there. Have a great one and see you next time. Thank you.
life.